You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. Everybody, welcome to Impact Theory. You are here, my friends, because you believe that human potential is nearly limitless, but you know that having potential is not the same as actually doing something with it. So our goal with this show and company is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you actually execute on your dreams. All right, today's guest is a human lie detector who has dedicated her life to cracking the code on interesting human behavior, a certified fraud examiner, body language expert, and author of Human Lie Detection and Body Language 101. She has literally written the book on reading people. She has traveled the world as a speaker, presenting her findings to prestigious universities and Fortune 500 companies, and she's been featured on NPR, The Today Show, The Wall Street Journal, and a ton of other media outlets. But saying that doesn't even scratch the surface of what makes her so special. The self-described recovering awkward person didn't just read a few books, call herself an expert, and start blogging. She founded her own research lab, conducted hundreds if not thousands of her own studies, and as the lead researcher at the Science of People, she has amassed what is arguably one of the most arresting sets of science-backed insights into human behavior that I have ever seen. Every video, every article, every page of her books will leave your jaw hanging wide open with their transformative usability. She is transparent, super authentic, and never afraid to ask an inappropriately intimate question for the benefit of all of us. And all of that gives her work an irreverent sparkle that makes it truly captivating. Whether you want to understand yourself or others better, she's got the data-driven goods you've been looking for. So please, help me in welcoming the woman who used to hide in the bathroom to avoid people at parties and is now the most captivating person in most any room, the author of the enthralling book, Captivate, The Science of Succeeding with People, Vanessa Van Edwards. Welcome. <laughs> it is so good to have you on the show. That was the perfect hug. Yes, that was wonderful. And yes. we discussed it beforehand, yeah, which we I think is it. important. I, I like practicing hugs and handshakes just because you have that awkward moment that's like, are we gonna are we gonna handshake, hug, side hug? Yes. So that was perfect. And what was the other one? Squiggle? A squiggle. Yeah, that was I yeah. had not heard of that, but as soon as you showed me what it was, yeah. I was like, So okay, a squiggle yeah. is typically two women, but not always. So a yes. squiggle is a moving hug. It's like a, a moving cuddle. So it's when people go, hug, ooh, that's a squiggle. Yeah, there's you know a lot I mean? of squiggles that's... in my life, I'm no. gonna be really honest. I've witnessed them. You know, I think you might like it. You think? Like, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like a bear hug, but there's movement in it. It's like we're a squiggling. dance. We could squiggle at the end if you All want. Right, we'll give it a shot. That is so hey, we could try don't it. Knock it till yeah. you tried it. And we should also come up with a name for that hug that where someone hugs and they go the pat, 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 pat. Yeah, I do that one a lot. You do that I one? Do that that's one. a man to man. That's a that's a, a patty cake hug. So I've got a weird thing with um, so like my wife, my wife will just set her hand on me. For me, my hand has to be moving to show attention, Oh, which is partly why I think I do the pat on the back thing, but then I've seen that made fun of, so. Well, the thing is, is so patting from a nonverbal perspective, it's an interesting nonverbal move. So I don't know if, you, yeah. I'm a little tense now. I know, yeah, well, I should tell you, you should know. <laughs> yes, so, so patting, if it's done from above, it's often a dominance gesture. Okay. So think about a dog, right? What do we do? We pat a dog's head. Think about a child. We say, good job, good boy. So if it's done equally, like, you know, oh, wow, it's good to see you. It's right. not so bad. But just be careful you're not like the... No, that I don't do. Right. So, and you'll notice that it's actually quite a demeaning gesture. There are certain politicians you might have mm-hmm. seen out there that yeah. will... Um, yeah, just a few. And they will pat. They will pat um, on the upper shoulders or on the upper back. It's a way of saying good boy or good girl. Interesting. It's a very subtle nonverbal cue. But usually the equal pat, which I think... I don't know. What do you think about patty cake? Um, no, that's not man enough. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Your facial expression the, doesn't look so good about yeah, I've it. I've never had the instinct to do that, but like the one-handed, like I, I would say ninety percent of my hugs incorporate. In- incorporate the a pat. Yeah. So maybe that's the bro hug. Yeah. The so brug. 
The Brug. Well said. I mean, let's just, let's just like I like it. naming everything. I name, I name car turns. I name hugs. Right, I like so creating let's words. Let's get into that because it's actually okay. pretty fascinating. So what I love is that, so my core belief about human existence is that you can learn virtually anything. Yeah. You've come a long way from being the awkward person. Do you think people can learn anything? I think people can learn anything. I think, however, you have a spectrum of how much you can improve. So like, let's say, for example, sports are the easiest way to think about this. So let's say, for example, you are um, a very lightweight, compact male under five foot. You would make a great jockey, right? Like you'd be great at riding horses if you're small and compact. Could you learn to be a basketball player? A hundred percent. But your ability or your um, percent improvement is going to ha- is only going to be able to improve so much, and you're going to have to work much harder for that compared to say a six foot seven man mm. who's going to have to work a little bit less hard to be able to dunk shots because he just is closer to the closer to the net. I think if you think about it that way, it's how much work do you have to do to get there? So do you think that part of why you've been able to get as good as you have with breaking this stuff down because you had to learn it? Or do you think there's some another, another innate skill that you have that's allowed for that? I think it's because, and maybe other recovering awkward people out there will feel this way, if you are a recovering awkward person, and I don't mean introvert, because you know, introverts do not have to be awkward, although I am introverted, um, we are very good at observing. And what happens is, is we see interactions in very black or white ways. If you are naturally charismatic or naturally good with people, you can walk into a room, you don't even have to think about a conversation starter. Whereas if you're awkward, a room looks like either a battlefield or a playground, depending on your mentality. And so if you see a room like a battle gun or, or a playground, you're instantly looking for who's on your team, you're looking for patterns, you're looking for verbal weapons, you're looking for different kinds of things in someone who will just walk into a room and naturally have it. Right. So I think that what's helped is that I tend to see every interaction that way, which has helped me study it in a formulaic way. It's a little different. What, what drew you to like the science, the study? I mean, not a lot of people start their own research lab. So um, I was a journalist, so I was just writing stories, and I loved science. I, for, from a very young age, my parents encouraged the academic side, the, the book smarts, the IQ. And... I think I totally forgot about the people smart side, the PQ thing. So I had all this ability to read 20-page academic studies and find some usable nugget. So I started to write about that for different blogs and journals out there. And I realized that the one thing that was, could differentiate me, anyone could write you know, an article about science, but the one thing that could change what I was writing is if I tested things on myself. So I either became a human guinea pig or I was able to actually do research in the real world. Because most studies are based on 20 college seniors who want academic credit for a psychology class. They're not representative of the whole population. So I thought if there was one thing that could differentiate this article from every other journalist, it would be adding my own take on it. So it was actually a a differentiator. It came from a place of trying to differentiate my work from other journalists out there. And then, of course, a personal need that I had to try to solve people, which I don't know if it's possible, but I'm certainly still trying. It's interesting to solve people. What do you mean by that? I loved in math class where you'd be working on a math problem and the teacher would be like, okay, here's a formula for you, Mm. right? It was like being given a cipher, you know, it was like the most powerful thing. And I thought, what if there was a cipher for people? Like, what if there was a way, a formula for people? And so I, I have something that I call the matrix. It was a little bit different than the Keanu Reeves, Reeves right. matrix, which I believe that every person has a cipher. They have a set of um, values that you can solve about them that if you turn it in the right ways, you can figure out how to figure out their motivations, how to figure out their values, how to speak to them so that they'll listen, how to make them feel loved. And so that's the closest I've come to actually solving people. And it's the only way that I've found to interact successfully. And when you say solve, though, are you saying to be able to have like a useful interaction or? To not, to not be so baffled by people's choices. Okay, so I don't, I don't know if this is a pain point for you, but I was constantly feeling like I didn't understand where people were coming from or they would be making choices and I didn't understand why, um, especially with friendships. And so I found that if I can figure out how they're coded, how they're wired, n- no longer do their decisions and their actions become baffling. Right. So give us some of those things. So, in fact, let me, you and I were talking about this, but let me break yeah. it down for you at home. Hi. Um, <laughs> 
So the way that I normally prepare for an interview is very different than the way that I will go through a book for a book review. And uh, started the book uh, on an international flight, so I had plenty of time, and started it just to read it as part of my interview prep for this interview. And then, man, like really fast, I was like, whoa, that was a cool insight. And then that was another one. And then rapidly it just turned into a book review and I just like went in like all the different points and how they add up and just like all the things I wanted in my own life and started because you and and this is what I'd really like you to talk about now you start breaking down like what motivates people what's their love language what's their primary value that kind of stuff and so I started going oh my god like what's mine like first of all I didn't even know mine yes and I found it very weird because I consider myself super self-aware I found it so much easier to identify my wife's always than to identify my own yeah so what are the like sort of key things to understanding someone else or yourself? Yeah, so I like to think of people a little bit like an onion, um, in that you know it there's makes different you cry layers. Exactly, but tastes delicious once cooked. <laughs> 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 okay, so the outside layer I think is the easiest one to solve. That's one we start with. Right. So this is the big five personality traits, and there's a lot of personality research out there. The only personality science that's actually backed, used by academic institutions, is called Ocean or the Big Five. Right. So this is someone's openness, so how adventurous they are, someone's conscientiousness, how organized they are, someone's extroversion, that's the one that we all know, how, how they like being around people, agreeableness, so um, how they work on teams, if they default to yes or default to no, we can talk about that one if you want, and then neuroticism, which is the, which is the one that no one wants to talk about. Yeah. Um, neuroticism is my favorite, it's how someone approaches worry. So that's sort of the first that those are the easiest to solve. And actually, research has found that I could look in your wallet, for example, um, or I could open your uh, bedside table and probably solve a lot of your personality traits. Oh, wow. I wish so I could wish do I that. I wallet. If you don't me. have it. Not on me. What would you be looking for? Because I would give it to you in a heartbeat. That would be so fun. So we are doing a study right now, actually, at the Science People, where I want people to take pictures of a couple different assets in their in their life. One, their car trunk. And by the way, if anyone watching wants to send me pictures of these things, I'm happy to analyze them. So their car trunk. Do you want me to tell you what mine looks like? Yeah. It's empty only because my wife's pressure is unending. Otherwise, it would be a filthy mess. <laughs> so that tells me that you are a little higher in agreeableness because you want to make your wife happy. You are so right. Yeah. I am like extremely high in agreeableness. Yes. Absolutely. And that's so the fact that that was your And I didn't reason. even mean to let that slip out, by the way. Yes. I'm yes. just trying to be honest about the fact that it's clean oh, now, now this only because of my good. wife. Yes. Okay. So that's so that, that because that's your motivation, right? That right. was your motivation there. Um, so your trunk. Um, your medicine cabinet and doesn't have you can hide your prescriptions. I just want to see how it's organized and how it's laid out. What's in there? I don't really have a medicine cabinet, but it's like stuffed in a drawer. Stuffed randomly. in a drawer. Then maybe medium and conscientiousness. So conscientiousness is how organized or how much you like routine. Okay. So it's like um, people who are really high in conscientiousness. This is this is me. I I find making a to do list like a sport. You know, like if I was an Olympic athlete, like I could make to-do lists. I could be a champion in this. I will put things on my to-do list just for the pleasure of checking them off. Nice. Someone's high in country. We got someone over there. I got you. We are the same. Yeah. Like alphabetizing gives me an adrenaline rush. Wow. You know what I mean? Some people jump out of airplanes, you alphabetize. Alphabetizing, like, like, you know, a bunch of books by color and by author name. Wow. My goodness. So anyway, so that's high high in conscientious. Low in conscientiousness means you're much more easygoing. You're much more spontaneous. You, You feel that the creative process is going with the flow and actually routine sort of boxes you in. So if your if your medicine drawer or medicine cabinet is like a little bit more haphazard, you don't really have a system to it. I would guess you're either medium low in conscientiousness. Well, right? what's interesting is so I'm very low. Uh-huh. I'm about as low as you can get on yes. the conscientiousness scale. It okay. is only because my wife is muddling your ability to read because That's right. she forces me to hide yeah. it in a drawer. Yeah. Otherwise, it would just be left <laughs> everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So low in conscientiousness. Um, and then uh, we hate that name, by the way, because that one made me feel weird about being low. Because oh. I feel like I'm a conscientious person. I think yeah. about other people and what their needs are. Yeah, so, so conscient, it's funny you mentioned that language. Mm-hmm. So um, language is a serious issue. So, for example, the book has now gotten picked up in 10 other languages. And it's a problem. Th- thank you. But it's, we're trying to figure out words. And, for example, in Western cultures, mm-hmm. there is an ideal personality type. And you will notice that every romantic comedy, the woman is the ideal personality type for women, and the man is usually the ideal personality type for man. So in Western cultures, for women it is, 
high in conscientiousness. So that that's sort of her funny quirk. Mm-hmm. She's really organized. Yeah. And doesn't like to be spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. Um, a high in agreeableness. So yeah, whatever you want, sweetie. Um, either medium or high in neuroticism. So kind of a warrior, but it's cute and endearing. Um, uh, Very spontaneous and extroverted and bubbly. And um, high in openness, adventurous and imaginative. That's like the perfect diode. So the problem is, is when you talk about neuroticism, neuroticism should not be a negative word, but it is considered negative because then you're called A-type or controlling. Um, And so it's funny, language is actually a huge issue. So conscientiousness does not mean that you don't care about people. It just means routine is not your your love, like like some people. So anyway, at at the lab, we're trying to figure out if we can guess people's personality types Mm. or solve their matrix based on their different assets in their house. good so far. Yeah, so uh, we're gonna ask people for that. And then um, the funny one is what's on your walls? So we've got the Michael Jordan flu game, okay. which is probably my most meaningful piece of art. Okay. Uh, it's all art, so I guess we'll start with that. Okay. And then mostly movies. Mm. So Matrix has like three or four appearances yeah. in the house. Um, and then that's pretty much it. So what they say is, uh, this is a research according to Sam Gosling. He wrote a great book called Snoop, which is if you're a snooper, this is the book for you. Um, so Sam Gosling found that um, high neurotics use more motivational quotes. So I am a high neurotic. I'm, I'm definitely a worrier. Um, and by the way, you know if you're high neurotic or low neurotic if um, you're really good at what-if scenarios. So high neurotics, we love pros and cons lists. Mm-hmm. Um, we can think through every worst-case scenario ever. Um, whereas low neurotics, they say things like, it'll all be fine which to a low neurotic is like the worst thing that you can say (laughs) because we believe that worrying is like an investment account. Do you know what I mean? So like the more that I worry, the less likelihood it will happen. Um, That is interesting. So so high neurotics love motivational quotes because it's like an external regulator for their internal world. Wow. So I have a lot of motivational quotes in my office space. You didn't have any, which makes me think that you're not very high neurotic. I'm super low neurotic, Ah, but I'm insanely... uh, chemically impacted by motivational stuff. So like I keep a list of quotes that I find motivational or empowering. Um, I follow a bunch of Instagram accounts that are all motivational. Your list of quotes, Mm -hmm. is it in a book? Is it covered or is it for display? It's in Evernote. Okay, so that means that you are medium or low neurotic because high neurotics, we, so can I get a little science? Okay, so, High neurotics carry a special form of a certain gene. Mm. It's called the serotonin transporter gene. So serotonin is a really important chemical in our body. It's what keeps us calm. It's what keeps us nice and stable. So for example, if you're driving and all of a sudden someone almost hits you, they don't hit you, but they almost hit you. Your adrenaline goes, your cortisol goes, and you're like, oh, we almost got in a car accident. A low neurotic like you will begin to produce serotonin. So your body goes, whew, we're okay. Everything's fine. And then a few minutes later, you're back to your music, everything's fine. Mm. A high neurotic like me has a harder time producing serotonin. We have a longer form of this transporter gene. So we produce less serotonin and more slowly, which means that my adrenaline and cortisol are pumping for longer than yours. So if I'm in the car with you and I'm like, gosh, that driver, and you're like, oh, well, he didn't hit us, we're good now. I'm still in adrenaline and cortisol, but you're calm. So what happens is, is that uh, uh, we as high neurotics are not as good at self-soothing. So we tend to have reminders, external reminders, to tell us to calm down. Whereas you as a lone neurotic, you don't need to see it. You can look at it when you feel like it, when you're curious. You pop up on Instagram or Twitter when you feel like it. Whereas I want to have them everywhere to remind me I'm okay. Wow, that, that is really interesting. One of the things that I found so awesome about your book was, one, it was teaching me about myself, but two, it was teaching me about Lisa. So, and in, in the relationship, the ones where you were like, okay, these, this is probably where you want to be in agreement, where you're both like the same, yes. and then these are ones where you want to balance, and you had talked about neuroticism and wanting to balance each other out. Yeah. And we balance each other out. So I'm really uh, low neurotic, and yeah. she's very high neurotic, not in the Woody Allen way, but like the way you're talking about yeah. it, right? Where she's just like... <laughs> I get um, it. I, I know what you're saying. She'll like go through like the thousand ways that this could go wrong and just be like have a much harder time like self-soothing. And when you said self-soothing, that's yeah. what's really interesting. So 
why it's important to balance. You don't have to, but there's actually studies that show that certain personality traits are better when they're matching versus opposite. So high neurotics get a bad rap, right? Everyone's like, oh, they're the worrier. They're the one who's always like, you know, overthinking things. But you actually need to have both. And the reason for this is because your low neurotic, you, Tom, are wonderful in a crisis. So if there's something bad happening or you need to get things done, you're the one with the level head. You know it's all going to be okay. You can stay steady the course. High neurotics prevent crises from happening in the first place. Right. And what's funny is so high neurotics need external reminders to keep them calm. Mm. So we like to see our to-do lists or our pros and cons lists. We like to have our rock nearby us at our side. Whereas low neurotics like to have external reminders of things they need to take care of. Yes. Right, because they they don't have the internal alarm clock that's constantly screaming at them. I joke that the piles scream at me, you know, from the floor because I can, I like want to get them. Whereas you might not see them. I literally don't. Don't see see them. them. I know. I keep my regular day to day stuff in my travel case because I know if I don't and I travel, it'll never it'll never make it. I just won't remember it. Yeah, yeah. So so that's a workaround for you. And I think this is what we're talking about here: is knowing how you are wired instead of fighting it. That's interesting because I'm a big believer in fight anything that doesn't work for you. But you talk. What if about we talk about book. optimize? Okay. So I think I think what I see a lot, and this is with personal development, and I'm a I'm a self help addict, right? Like I love every personal development book. I love like self help and transformation. The problem is, is that if we feel like we can change everything, we also might not optimize for how we are naturally wired. That's interesting. So the way that I like to think about it is every step in the book, you know, I teach a scientific principle, I tell a story, teach a scientific principle, then I give you three steps. Almost always step number one is you, right? Is figure out how you're wired before you work on someone else. It's like in a, in a flight, they always tell you, put your oxygen mask on before you fix someone else. It's the same thing. Like figure out your own wiring first. So you figured out that you will not remember. So by packing in that day pack, you've now taken out that worry, fixed that problem, and now you don't have to worry about it. As opposed to trying to take 15 different classes on how to be more of a warrior. Right. Fair enough. Do you know what I mean? So I think that um, figuring out how your spouse is wired and not trying to change them, but rather trying to set up systems in your home or systems for your business partner or things for your friends to know how they're wired. Another example is um, my good friend, Anna Lauren, if she's watching. Um, So she is a worrier also. Um, But if I give her too many choices, she'll get choice paralysis. Mm. So instead of trying to teach her how to make choices for herself and, you know, go through a whole, you know, what's paradox of choice, you know, lesson plan for her. I know that if I want to go out to dinner with her, I'm better off giving her one time and only two restaurant choices. Right. And I know that she likes to see the menu because she's high conscientious. Mm. So if I want to go to dinner, usually I will as an act of service say, Hey, AL, you want to go out for dinner on Monday at seven? I think we could do Thai. Here's the menu link. Or we could do sushi. Here's the menu link. And she will get back to me really fast. If not, what happens is every day she goes, oh, yeah, but I'm not sure about this, but what about this restaurant? And we end up rushing on the plans last minute. Are you, is this a two-way street with your friends? Like they know, I mean, obviously they know you, they know what you do, so they know they're in the matrix somewhere. They know they're in the matrix, yeah. But do you like walk them through? Like here's how you rate on Ocean and yeah. do you show them that stuff? Yeah, so my closest friends, first of all, my closest friends know, to be my, to be my friend, you, you know that every time you hang out with me it might be an experiment. So you have a quote that I love. I would rather live in hard truth than ignorant bliss. Yeah. And you're really into um, radical honesty. I am. How does that play out in your marriage? How does that play out in your friendships? Yeah. So in my marriage, I got very lucky. I married the most honest man I ever met. Wow. So he is very direct already. So he actually has helped me in that just very directness. Um, With friends, it's hard. I had to make the choice a long time ago when I first started this work, especially with lie detection. Lie detection is a skill that is a blessing and a curse, a little bit, Um, just because you see inconvenient things, Mm. right? You see things that you didn't expect to see. About yourself or No, usually about other people. I think you see in the personality matrix, you see things about yourself you might not like as much. Mm. Um, But with lie detection, you tend to see things about other people that you might not find as convenient. So I. Yes. Very nice. Find as convenient. Yes. Because what happens is, and this is what happened at the very beginning of sort of honing the skill and leveraging it, is I started to see friends who were not only lying to me, but lying to themselves. And I had to make a choice. Was I either going to have fewer high quality friends? or less quality but more quantity friends. And this was right at that stage where I also was trying to figure out 
how, what kind of friendships that I want to have on social media? And it's the same, I think, question that we all have to ask ourselves. I think of social media friendships like cotton candy. And I call these cotton candy friendships. So cotton candy friendships are great. These are the people that you love seeing at a party, right? You see them, you're like, oh, you do a squiggle. You're so excited to see them. You know, they're also the woo girls, you know. Woo! You know, you see them and get excited. You, but Tom's like, I don't know what that I is. I have zero yeah, okay, That's friends. okay. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it. you've seen it before. Um, and, they're, and they're really fun to hang out with. There's not a lot of substance there. There's not a lot of nutrition. Right. You wouldn't text them if you were going through something hard. You wouldn't, you know, call them if something happened to them. But it's a fun, exciting friendship. The thing is, is you eventually need to have a meal, right? Like cotton candy is okay every once in a while, but if you have too much of it, your teeth begin to like rot from it. You know, they ache from the sugar um, and they give you a sugar headache. And so I think that it's about what are the friends that give you nutrition, like the brisket friends? Mm. (laughs) And then which are those friends that are kind of the surface ones? And that was a big decision I had to make. You've talked about breaking up with friends. Like, so how do you sculpt that garden of friendship? It's so hard. So I think that adult friendships is, you know how when you're a teenager, everyone's talking about like bullying and cyberbullying. I think that as adults, this adult friendship issue is the next sort of frontier of talking about how do we court friends? How do we build a friendship when it's not romantic? How do we break up with a friendship when it's been too long? And the biggest thing that happens with friendships is they do go stale. And that's a very weird thing to say, but there are people, I'm sure you can think of someone in your life where every time their number pops up on a text message, you're like, oh, it's been a while. I better call them. Or, you know, you see them out of convenience or out of location. And I think that those are the kind of friendships that really drain you. There's actually a study that was done on ambivalent relationships. Yeah, this is so interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking about ambivalence a lot. So toxic people, we get it. Right? We all understand that we want to get rid of toxic people. That's more obvious. The real danger, I think, is ambivalent relationships. So these ambivalent relationships are the people where either you don't know how you stand with them, so you don't know if they like you or not, and they're also the people where you don't know if you really enjoy hanging out with them or not. Have you ever had that? Yes. And you're like, Am I, is this going to be fun? Was that fun? Is this fun? Um, and I think those are the ones that take the more energy. There are also the more dangerous ones because they tend to yeah. creep in and stay in. Mm. So the whole notion of frenemies I find really, really intriguing. And this is something certainly that I've dealt with in my life. And yeah. it was weird to me how until I read that, that it didn't register why that would be so insidious. So what the study, what the science says, they did a, a research study with police officers. And they asked police officers to identify the amount of toxic people in their workplace and the amount of ambivalent people. And they found that the police officers who had more ambivalent relationships um, were sick more often, had less happiness at work, and didn't like their job as much than police officers who had toxic people. Just, Just think about that for a second. And the reason for this is because if you have a toxic person, boundaries are easy. They ask you to go out to lunch and you're like, no thanks. Right? Like, you know it's a no thanks. Whereas if an ambivalent person asks you out to lunch or asks you to their birthday party or, you know, asks you to work on something, it takes this mental energy where you have this thing where you're like, ooh, like, will it be good? Would I rather eat alone at my desk or would I rather have lunch with this person? And when it's not always easy, that's an incredible drain on our emotional energy. And if you are an introvert or an ambivert, an ambivert is someone who is kind of splits between extroversion and introversion. Your energy is finite, and our mental space is finite. And this is something that I did not realize until much more recently. I thought that mental space was sort of endless, right? You could learn forever. Um, You could think about things forever. But actually, we only have a certain amount of mental time every day. And if we're dedicating that to trying to figure out if someone likes us or not, which is a very important thing, we all like to be liked whether we admit it or not, that I think is a waste of mental energy. Why would we want to spend it towards that? And that's why I think ambivalent people are more dangerous. Do you have a checklist? Because I'm like thinking back to the people that managed to become frenemies in my own life. Mm-hmm. It's kind of scary how long it took me to be able to put that label on them to like yeah. sort of wake yes. up to the fact that either they always were or the relationship had evolved to that. Like years, right? Years. I know. So I don't have a checklist. It's actually just one simple question. All right, let's hear it. Are you ever doubting that they're really happy for you? Wow, that cuts right to the heart of it. I mean, that's it. And that that happens actually quite often. Like, there are these people who make these very passive-aggressive comments where you're like, was that nice or was that mean? (laughs) 
If you're ever questioning that, that means they are not truly happy for you. Or if you have a piece of really good news, they, a really true good friend will mirror and match that excitement with you. Someone who's not as happy for you will come in with dream killer questions. You know dream killers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dream killer questions are when they question your success, they doubt the success, they think of all the negatives. And dream killers are not always bad. I, I have dream killers in my life, and I call them when I need someone to poke holes in a business idea. Mm. Right? Like, I'll pitch them because they're great practice. But I know that they are not the people that I go to when I have something I'm truly excited about. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So that that's the only question you have to ask yourself, and it might be an inconvenient truth. Like, don't answer it off the cuff. Like, don't answer it really quickly. Like, try to think of all the times in the last six months that you've seen them and shared something. Did you feel like they were as happy as you were about your happiness? Yeah. And uh, this is is one of those things that has made a, a big impact in my life because you can very slowly, especially in business, find yourself in a situation where you don't know who to trust. And I find, and maybe it's the psychic energy, like you were talking mm-hmm. about emotional energy. Um, for me, it, it, it became a question of emotional safety mm. where when I know you're my enemy, I don't feel emotionally vulnerable, oddly enough, even though I know you may actively be out to get me. Like yeah. I can handle that. Yeah, yeah. It's when 
I'm like giving you my neck, if you will, enough. And every now and then you actually take a swipe at it. And sometimes yeah. like, ah. Oh. Yeah, that's when you lose sleep. Yeah, like, yes, literally. And you, and you sit in bed and you rerun all the things they've said or you've said. You worry about all the things that could potentially happen. You know, we talk about psychic energy. I actually think that we are, this is going to sound so weird. I actually think that we pick up on more chemically than we realize. Yeah, talk to me about that. Okay, so I, I don't believe in psychics. I don't believe in psychic energy, but I do believe that things happen beyond our conscious awareness mm. in this sense. So there was a study that was done that looked at um, fear. So what they did is they took um, participants, they had them wear sweat pads, absorbent sweat pads, and run on the treadmill. And the, they collected sweat from these people running on the treadmill. Then they had participants wear sweat pads and jump out of an airplane for a first time skydiving experience, mm -hmm. okay? So they had sweat pads that were just treadmill sweat pads and they had first skydiving sweat pads, okay? Same sweat, but is it really? Then they had participants in a lab sit in an fMRI machine, so their brain was being scanned, and smell, kind of gross, both pads. They did not know what they were smelling, they had no idea what they were smelling. They found that when participants smelled the fear sweat pads, the skydiving sweat pads, their own fear response activated in their brain. Wow. So that means that somehow I think that we can smell emotions. So if you are with someone and they are either they, they do not mean well for you or they are planning on taking a swipe at your neck, you somehow smell that threat. And even though consciously your brain is going, they didn't say anything, they didn't do anything, their body language is okay, it seems all okay, the other part of your brain, the animal part of your brain, which is firing in fear response or threat response, is going, no, watch out. And that's what keeps you up at night, is your conscious brain wrestling with the unconscious part of your brain. I think that that's, when we talk about being psychic or having premonitions, I think that that's actually what's happening. We're, we're smelling or picking up on things that we don't even realize. Yeah, that's crazy. And just for clarity's sake, when I said psychic energy, I uh, did not mean psychic like uh, a psychic. Okay, psychic. Okay. I also think is nuts. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, that's yeah, that is incredibly interesting. Go ahead. It, it, I was going to add the other aspect of this is um, like facial s structure. Um, so yes. Just, there was a part in the book that had. I'm obsessed with. This did you, were you able to sort of see the faces? Were you able to see them? Yes, and I like to think yeah. that I'm like Jedi level at cool. slicing. Cool, okay. Just from the amount of interviewing that I've done, like I'm totally obsessed with this yeah. notion of how much, and it scares me because I think I actually have like a, I definitely have resting bitch face, uh -oh. so let's start with that. Yeah. And then on top of that, like yeah. when I would explain to people, <laughs> Uh, like what thin slicing is, hey, you're walking in a dark alley and you turn around and you see like this little old lady and she seems so sweet, like you thin slice immediately, not a threat. My brain immediately used the example, but if you turn around and see me, you're gonna get freaked out. And I thought, I have like a face that like I would thin slice poorly. Like oh I, would not, I would not thin slice myself. Be like, what a loving, kind Wait. individual. Okay, okay, yeah. so I don't think you're wrong. See? That's what I'm think saying. You're and you're like, that. this is I'm what you sorry. do. I'm so sorry. I know. No, fair I'm enough. I'm not. I, inconvenient truth. But let me explain yes. why. Why? Please. Okay. So um, there is some evidence, and again, we there's a lot of research needs to be done on this, but I find it fascinating, about in the womb, babies are exposed to mother's hormones. Right. So that could be testosterone, that could be estrogen, that could be any, any different variety of things. And those change or turn on different genes in the baby. So for example, if a baby was exposed to a lot of testosterone prenatally, they're going to develop, develop more masculinized feature, both men and women. So we know a face is very masculine if they have a very, very square jaw, if they have the presence of stubble, if they have flat eyebrows and or slightly hooded eyebrows. Mm -hmm. That's your face, okay, okay. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a good thing, it's a good thing, because it's a very masculinized face. Right. So what you, that is 100% right. So in the book, I have um, computer graphics of co incompetent faces to competent faces, dominant, fa not dominant faces to dominant, um, not competent to competent, and then um, uh, I think it's trustworthy, not trustworthy, trustworthy. Right. So you fall very high on the dominance scale. Right. 
So if someone turned around and you were in a, in, a, in a back alley, you look very masculinized, which means that you have a lot of testosterone and typically men with more testosterone are going to be you know, more powerful, have shorter temper, all these things. So it's about the shape of your jaw. It's about the hooding of your eyebrows um, that, and then the presence of stubble and you wear stubble. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, I think this is a good thing. And this is a good thing. Does it help that if the little old lady turns around and I, and I actually worry about it, like I distance my, yeah. like if I find myself and I know this woman is going to have a heart attack, she turns around, <laughs> like so I'll start slowing <laughs> down or I'll walk like over to the side and fast so she can see hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I try to do my neutral goofy face. Which, let me see it. <laughs> How is it? It's, it's like the arched eyebrows, it's like I try to like half smile. And I feel like such a dumbass. No, no. But I'm like, I have seen photos. (laughs) So I used to do speech and debate in high school. Oh, yeah. And one time, like, I crushed it. I was so excited. And I got the review back. And it was like, uh, dude, what is wrong? Try not to look so angry. And I was like, what? Like, I literally, and so I read it to someone. They're like, yeah, dude, can you, like, put your head down and then look up? You look like a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what? So literally, I go, I go in the bathroom. I tilt my head down and I look up. Yeah, oh yeah, oh my and god. I thought, oh! Wait, I was like, what the hell? We do that to a camera, because that is it. That is Yeah. That's when I realized. Yeah, that's oh, intense. Man. I'm like, oh, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So yeah, and but now you know why, right? You know it's the shape of your yeah. jaw and your face. So you what you did is perfect. You optimized how you were naturally wired, right? Okay, right. So it's so show me your um, what did you call it? Your goofy silly face? My goofy neutral face. Can I see your goofy neutral face again? Okay, okay, perfect. Okay, can I explain why this works Please. from a scientific perspective? Okay, so when we raise our eyebrows up, it is the universal sign of interest or engagement. For example, if I were in a bar and go, you would know what I meant. Right. Or if I were to be listening and be like, oh, you would know that means I'm like literally trying to see more, right? It's like the invocation of that. So with your eyebrows up, it changes the shape of that hooded look. Right, so when you're like this, this is a very high testosterone when, you're, when your eyebrows are hooded. So when you push them up, not only does it show openness, engagement, curiosity, say hi, it also takes away the hooding. And then you also slightly opened your mouth a little bit. That also softens your jaw. So in a way, that takes your face and just makes it more open. I think that this is something, I think this is actually a very good thing because I think it's part of the reasons why you are so successful. Wow. We like people who are very powerful, who have high testosterone. We like it for both men and women. So your look shows intensity, it shows strength, it shows power. So never be angry at how you are wired, your genetics, how your face looks, because that is, I think, a huge contributor to your success. I feel that way with everyone. We all have things about our face, about our personality, about our body, about that we don't like, but I think that if we can frame it as this has been an aspect or it can be an aspect of our success, that's extremely important. For example, I also have resting bitch face. Shall we critique, should I critique myself? Please, yes. I feel like I was critiquing you, so I should critique myself as well. So I have resting bitch face, and the reason for this is because my features angle downwards. So um, at rest, this is me at rest. Right, and I just look like terrible, right? I'm just like, oh, like I, I'm, I'm bored, I'm upset. And that is because my lips, when, I'm, when they're at rest, angle slightly downwards, and my eyes also angle slightly downwards. Even if I'm totally neutral, they angle down. So I know that I can look very, very serious. But that has also helped me because I am a science researcher, right? Like it's very important for me to look like I'm taking things seriously as I am. So when I want to be more on or engaged, you'll notice that I actually do my makeup a very specific way. I don't know if you, if you can see my makeup. Yeah, yeah, angle So up. I angle up. Yep. Um, and I also um, put my uh, shadow a little bit above my brow bone, a little bit above my um, eye to bring my eyes up. Right. That is because I know that's going to make me look a little happier, a little less sad, a little less intense. Mm. So this is something that I know about myself, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. It's just something that I know I have to counteract a little bit. All right, so I want to go back to radical honesty. Yes. So what does that look like? Like, what are you actually saying to your friends in particular? <laughs> so this means that instead of making up an excuse, I will just tell them the real reason I don't want to do something. So for example, um, a, a good friend of mine was like, um, hey, I'm, I have this networking event that um, I'm throwing. It's with a bunch of women in Oregon. I live in Portland. Um, you should definitely come and do like a little speaking thing, and it'll be really great. Instead of me saying, oh, I'm really busy, or I, I don't really, I, I don't have time for it right now, I was like, hey, 
I do terribly at really big, loud networking events. You don't want me there. Like, I get really anxious. Like, it's really hard for me. Is there any way that we could do a luncheon instead where we're like, around a table where we can like talk sort of in a more quiet environment. So instead of making up some excuse, I actually will tell them the real reason why I do or don't want to do something and then we try to work around it. And what does that look like at work? At work. Oh, so um, we have a wonderful team. So we're about six people in our lab and then we have 120 science people trainers. So our trainers are body language trainers and they do my curriculum and there are different cities around the world. So basically what this means is um, we have a very direct task management system. So I think that is incredibly important with your team to A, know their personality matrix. So I know everyone on my team, their personality matrix and also how they like to receive feedback and how they like to brainstorm. So for example, let's say that I have an idea and I want to do a big brainstorming session. I like to brainstorm out loud, but I know that two of my team members do not. So they might say to me, if we're in a big brainstorming session, I'm like, any ideas, any ideas? And it's like crickets. They would say to me, and they would have complete permission to do so, hey, Vanessa, um, would there be any way that you could write down these ideas, give us about a week to kind of prepare something, and then we could get back together next Friday? I'm not really ready to brainstorm right now. Instead of having a really lame, drawn-out, 50-minute session where no one's really throwing around any ideas. So it's a much faster way to um, speak to our natural orientations uh, in the workplace or on our team. Talk to me about identifying primary values and what they are so that you know how to better deal with people. Yeah. So I, I was always fascinated by motivation, in the workplace especially. How do you motivate a partner? How do you motivate a colleague? How do you um, appeal to their interests? I talk about this in the book a little bit. Um, I always thought that with colleagues, the biggest motivation was money, right? Salary, perks, bonuses. I thought that was sort of most of the reason why you work. You hopefully work for a little bit of passion as well, but you're getting sort of to trying to pay the bills. And so I had one of my employees who was doing an amazing job, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to give her a raise and a bonus. She's been doing such a good job. So I, it was, I had to move around some things budget-wise, but I really wanted to show her how appreciative I was. We get together, and um, I say, I, I'm so excited. I'm in, I would love to give you a raise and a bonus. And she was like, thanks. And I was like, that's it? Yeah. Like, that's... That's all. And then I discovered this research on resource theory. And so resource theory says that every interaction, every relationship is a transaction. I know that sounds really terrible, but actually it's a very honest, very radically honest way of of looking at relationships. And there are six different resources that we all give and take. And these are different than the love languages. This is resources. One of them is money. And that's the one that we think about a lot. We talk about it a lot. But what I found out is this particular employee, her primary value was actually status. How did you find that out? So when I when I realized she was sort of she had a kind of like a lackluster response, she was so like, literally, oh, you do the thing, lackluster yeah. response. You're feeling a little. I feel like, I feel hmm. terrible. I actually feel terrible because mm. I went out of the way to make budget for her, right. and I also really wanted to thank her for her amazing work. And so when she was like not happy, I was like. But you had to read through not the lie, but like she was saying thank you, yay. Negative nonverbal, right? I was seeing. So when we're talking about nonverbal, there's either micro uh, micro advantages or micro negatives. Micro so, advantages. Micro advantages or micro negatives. Can so you give me an example. Yeah. So like a micro advantage is um, if you ask a good question, I would be like nodding at you. I'd like smile. I'd be like, oh, that's great. I'd widen my eyebrows. Those are all micro advantages I'm giving you to say I love that question. Okay. A micro-negative, this is what you probably pick up on without realizing it, are all the things that people do when they don't like a question. So maybe they lean back, maybe they make a mm, right. <laughs> face, um, maybe they pinch their eyebrows together, maybe they crinkle their nose up at you, yeah. they might turn their head away and uh, bite their nails. Those are all micro-negatives. So I noticed that she wasn't showing any micro-advantages and a couple of micro-negatives, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect if you just told someone that they got a raise. So I felt terrible. I felt terrible also because I was worried that she was unhappy. And did you notice it right there in the moment? Right there and then. Right in the moment. Yeah. And now that I hopefully just taught that to you guys, I'm very curious if you now start seeing them right away. Mm. The nice thing about body language is it doesn't take a long time. Once you know what to look for, you see it all the time. Yeah. So I noticed it right away, and I was like, oh, okay, well, um, you know, it will be in your next month's paycheck, and you know, I'm just so grateful. Thank you so much for all your hard work. I've really appreciated your work. And she's like, oh, yeah, it was my pleasure. I love the science people. Okay, we're good. But I felt terrible because I was worried that she didn't like her job because mm. I was like, what else could be the reason? 
What else could be the reason? I was like, oh my gosh, she's thinking about quitting. My mind eroticism went crazy. My neuroticism was like, she's going to quit. She hates me. She hates science people, right? Like I went all the way down that route. And so when I stumbled upon this study that maybe I was looking into motivation, I was reading a white paper on employee engagement and employee motivation because I was worried about losing her. I found this resource theory and I was like, wait a minute, status. And I started to think back to the times when she showed a lot of micro advantages. And one of the times was when we created an about our team page and I put pictures of each person on the page. She was so excited. She was like, oh, I'm going to go get a new headshot. I can't wait. Like, she showed me like 15 headshots. She's like, which one has the best body language? She was so excited. And I was like, I, I didn't think much of it at the time. But I was like, I wonder if that's status. So I had a meeting with her and I said, radically honest, I was like, you know, I offered you a raise last month because I'm so appreciative of your work. I don't know if that was what you wanted. Is that what you wanted? Is that if, that, if I want to show you how grateful I am for you, what way can I do that for you here at work? And she said, actually, you know, I really have been wanting a director role. I was like, great, let's talk about a director role. Let's get you on a plan where we look at titles. So I didn't realize that there was all these other things, like putting her name on the website, putting her in more YouTube videos with me. I didn't realize that that was actually a huge give and so easy for me to give because I am so grateful for her. And so for me, like it was like I was so thankful that we were able to get very quickly, very honestly to what her value was. And I think this is the big challenge is figuring out yours. Um, and then also trying to figure out every single person that you work with, including your friends and family. So what's interesting, though, is the biggest shock for me from your book was how I felt like I had never categorized myself in yeah. such a clear way. Yeah. So what do you do when the person doesn't know? Yeah. So you are their decoder. And I think that, that is the most fun role that we can play in life. So if you have someone who is not as self-aware, right, like they, they don't know, they hadn't thought about it that way, you get this amazing gift of being able to unlock for and with them. I think, and that's a lot of responsibility, but I think that is one of the most amazing gifts we can give our fellow human beings. What I would do if I were you is I would go through the series of Arthur Aronson, uh, 34 questions every couple should answer. Ah, So this is a really interesting study um, that uh, this researcher wanted to find out how we get to love. And he found that there are three different tiers of relationships. So in the first phase of a relationship, we're just trying to figure out interests. So it's like, you know, do you like that? I like that too. What's your hobby? Um, And personality traits. That's the first level. That's also why I built the first level of the matrix to be personality. The second level are values, which is why the next levels are around appreciation levels and values. So you're trying to figure out, you know, where does this person, what do they mean? What do they stand for? And the last one is how you relate to them, like how um, how your relationships can match up. So he developed a set of 34 questions to ask to take you through all three levels through just these questions alone. So we actually have a list of them. I can send you the list of them. You can, we can do them together if you want one day. And you actually go through each of these, converse, your, these questions and they will take you through not only you getting to know yourself, but also them doing a self-exploratory exercise. It is the most amazing two, three, five hours you will ever spend with someone going through these questions. And that's, I think, how we guide someone to self-know themselves. That would be amazing. We should put a link to that in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, that yeah. would be really, really incredible. And, and if you can, it's, it's amazing to do them all in one session, but it's a lot, especially if you have someone who's more introverted. So I think it's very important to respect people's natural orientations. So if someone is an introvert, that means they're going to use less words in the average day. It means they're more private, and it means they like to think through their answers before saying them. Extroverts usually don't, want, don't need any thinking time before they, before they share. In fact, they tend to verbalize out loud. So they verbalize outwardly. So if you have an introvert, I would highly recommend sending them the questions ahead of time so they can think about them. It's a nice way to respect their personality and or doing a few at a time. I love that. Yeah. What's one thing that people typically don't know about themselves that you think everybody should know about themselves? Actually, it's something we briefly touched on earlier but didn't get to talk about. How you self-soothe. So everyone should know two aspects of self-soothing. The first is um, when you are in anxiety, whether you're a high neurotic or a low neurotic, do you, like to ver- do you like to worry outward? Do you verbalize your worry or do you shut down and close down? 
So when I'm very worried, I like to be alone with my journal. Like I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to like think about it myself. Whereas other people like to worry with others, right? Like they like to talk through their worry and that makes them feel calm. So that's the first thing is how do you worry? Do you worry alone or do you worry with others? That's going to be very important so that if you're in one of those really terrible low points, we all hit those points, you know exactly which direction you need to do. Is it out to drinks with friends? You know, do you have your, your brigade that you call? Or is it home with a journal and a big glass of wine? Those are two very different paths. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, how can the people in your life help you self-soothe? I think that, I don't, I think this might be more of a gender thing. I don't know. A lot of females, a lot of women in my life, when they're very, very anxious, they don't know how to ask for help, both logistically and emotionally. What do you mean? How do you logistically? So there's two ways of asking for help. Mm-hmm. And maybe my women in the room will kind of, this feels familiar. I, I, it, you look so intrigued. Uh, yeah, okay. So when a woman is upset about something, and some men too, um, usually there's a logistical issue, right? Like let's say that it's um, in-laws coming for the weekend and they get very stressed out. Okay. There's logistical issues, but there's also emotional issues. They are different. They are so very different. In the in-law example, so they're yeah. coming, that's the yes. logistical. The emotional is... My so actually, let's, feel this we'll way. break it down even more more closely. So logistical, um, got to get the guest room ready, got to do all the sheets, got to prep the towels, got to clean the house so my father-in-law doesn't critique it. Okay, those are those are logistical all things worries. I would think about once he starts critiquing it and they're already in the house. So yeah, but I'm yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, and women are all thinking about that way ahead yeah, of time. So yep. Right. And then the four emotional worries might be um, how to make sure that they actually like the house how to make sure that we're all going to get along this weekend, how to make sure that um, we bring up that issue about health that we really need to talk about, and how do we make sure that we actually have a relaxing weekend and it's actually a good time, okay? Those are eight issues that usually come up around everything. There's all different issues, but they are totally different ways that we self-soothe. So logistical, how do you, who do you ask for help and how do you ask for help? Right? Like, is it going to your husband or your kids or your best friend? And for emotional issues, do you want to sort of take a few moments, take a few hours, meditate, do your thing, go for a run, you know, eat really healthy that day to get yourself in the right mind space? Or do you want to go out with friends, have a really blowout night, and like kind of work out all your anxiety before they come? If you don't know that, you are going to set yourself up for failure. And you're also setting up the people in your life for failure. So the biggest mistake that I think couples fight about, they have the same fights over and over again, is they need to ask for help, but they have no idea how to ask for it. Um, and, and by the way, if you don't go through this, that's how you get complete breakdowns. That. Because they've been, it's just yeah. bottling it right. up. They don't know where to go, right. how they deal with it. And that's how you get someone who's like yelling and running around before everyone shows up to try to get things fixed when actually they're really worried about the emotional stuff. And the questions that you just walked us through are the questions they should be asking themselves. Yes. So very specifically, whatever it is, and you do this when you're in a point of calm, right? Not when you're already in the worry. Yeah. So how do I worry, right? Do I worry out loud? Do I worry by myself? Who can help me and how can they help? And what are the differences between my emotional and logistical worries? Because they are different. I think if we know that about ourselves, we can then ask for help in better ways. And it sets up everyone in our life for much more harmonious relationships. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. So most of what we've talked about today is in your book. Just amazing. Read this book. Um, But there's one thing that I've heard you mention, which is a two-year study you're doing on happiness, which you didn't talk about in the book. Didn't, yeah. Do you have any nuggets that you're ready to talk about? Yeah, so I have been researching happiness for a long time, and that is because um, I have always been intrigued by my own happiness levels, and I felt like I always had a base point. Like, I always felt like, you know, I was sort of at a set point, and I couldn't go two points above or two points below that set point. I wanted to know if there was ways to hack happiness. So we've been studying happiness for uh, the past two or three years at our lab, So the most important thing that I have learned so far, and I'm going to put out more research on this, is this idea of learned helplessness. So there's this horrible study. It was done uh, by Martin Seligman. It's horrible. Can I share it? Yeah, I know the study well. Okay, yeah. So um, this study took dogs, and it put the dogs into a cage with a mat that just very lightly shocked them. Mm. And so the dogs would get on the mat, and it would kind of shock them. Very unpleasant experience. They put them in these cages with these shocking mats, and then they changed the cage so that there was a space next to the mat the dog could move off the mat. The problem is the dogs who had been on the shocking mat for a long time just gave up. They never went off the mat. In fact, they just sat and took the shocks, even though they could move off the mat. 
Whereas the dogs that didn't ever see the mat before immediately jumped off the mat and went to the place that didn't get the shocks. The idea of this is that we end up learning about our helplessness. So when it comes to happiness, we might have learned a pattern in college or in childhood or in our 20s or when we were broke, or when we were out of a job or whatever that was. And because, even though the mat's not there anymore, even though the shocks aren't there anymore, we stay in the same position because that's how we've always learned to be. And so when it comes to happiness, way more than personality, way more than decoding people, I think that we can absolutely change our entire happiness orientation. I think we can unlearn our helplessness to learn to help ourselves. That sounds amazing. When are you going to start putting stuff out on that? So I have one course on that already. It's called The Power of Happiness. And it's like a, it's 10 different steps that we've just started learning about. Um, but I will give you one just to start off with right now. And it's this. It's um, called, I call it the skill, the chart of happiness. So we end up thinking that happiness comes with the big vacation once a year or the big blowout things once every month. We don't realize that actually happiness comes in these very, very small moments every day. And actually, that is those are the happiness moments we have to savor. So what I'd highly recommend is for the next few days, sit down and make a chart of everything that you do in your life, down to making a steaming hot cup of coffee, down to going for a run, down to doing laundry. And then I want you to rank each of those things on how happy they make you. And I, I don't mean like happiness like euphoric. Sure. I mean like happiness, like content with your life. Like I am content doing this. I know this sounds crazy, but even like laundry or cooking, something that we often think of as a chore, can provide a certain amount of contentedness if you look at, that, look at it that way. So I want you to rate all of those skills. And then I want you to count up the number of hours you spend on each of those skills every day. What you'll end up finding is you end up doing what I call happy math. Happy math is basically looking at the fact that we end up spending the majority of our week, you know, 90% of our week, doing tasks that rank as a one or two or three, not very ha happy on the happy scale. And we end up having these really small once a week moments where we're actually happy. But really they're these small little moments. It's, it's having that amazing cup of coffee or um, taking in your view from your window or whatever, these little small things. Those minutes add up and I think it's about slowly hacking how can you add in more and more of those minutes. Um, here's another kind of tip on the happiness stuff that I just realized would be a really easy one to try. So another, I talked about these little moments of happiness. There's also these little moments of unhappiness that as humans, we cannot help but infect our entire life. So you, you know how when you're sitting at a red light and you literally question your entire existence? Is that anyone? Does that ever happen anywhere? Sure. Yeah. Um, so you know, you're sitting at a red light and you're like, why do I sit in traffic? Why do I drive to work? Why do I do what I work? Why am I doing this? Maybe I should quit my job. Maybe I should move to Hawaii. Maybe I shouldn't have a car. Like that's like what happens, you know? So one of the hacks that I have found works really well is taking those small moments and turning them into what I call gratitude totems. So a totem is like a symbol or something to remind you of something. So I have a red light by my house that I get stopped at every single day. It doesn't even matter what time of day. And I used to yell at this red light. I would curse at it. And then I realized, wait a minute. Like this light causes me so much unhappiness. I have such a hard time being grateful. Like every Oprah magazine ever says, be more grateful. Who has time to be grateful, right? Like no one has time to do that. But now I have time. So whenever I am stopped at that red light, for the entire red light, I think about every single thing I'm grateful for. And now I get upset if I do not hit it. Because I know that every time I pull up to that red light, I have a minute and a half, just think about all the things I'm grateful for. Check, I got my gratitude off. I feel nice and good. I flipped a very unhappy moment for me that makes me question driving and cars and my life and turned it into something that actually makes me very appreciative. That is brilliant. Yeah. All right, where can these guys find you online? Everything is at scienceofpeople.com. So that's our lab and we do experiments. Come play in our, in our lab. We always have experiments running. We love for people to, I think right now we're doing a vocal power quiz. I know. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you have to go check it out. It's very cool. Um, and we uh, are just very appreciative for all of your support and comments. So if you have any feedback, let me know. Awesome. And last question, what is the impact that you want to have on the world? I want to wake people up. I think that my entire job is to try to get people out of zombieing through social interactions. I think a lot of the times we have conversations on autopilot we interact with people on social scripts. And so my one goal, the impact I wish I could have, 
is to wake people up out of their social interactions so they actually have quality conversations and quality interactions and not just quantity. It's amazing. Vanessa, thank you so thank much for you. coming on the show. Guys, let me tell you, this is somebody that you are going to want to dive deeply into. Like I said earlier, when I started the book, I was doing it to make sure that I understood the content so that I could come on and do a great interview. And it so carried me away. I literally wanted to say captivate there, but that's too like, <laughs> obvious. It is literally captivating. The book about becoming captivating will arrest you. It will stop you because every bit of it, and I felt like the book was trying to teach me a lot about other people, but it was teaching me so much about myself. And I am somebody that obsessively thinks about self-awareness and where I'm at and what I understand about myself and my natural impulses and what can be overcome and what's not worth fighting. And this book broke everything down and made it all so easy to understand. And if you really want to have a good time, drop her name into YouTube and just watch the videos one after the other after the other. It is the closest thing to being able to literally just let something autoplay every video that it selects that I've ever come across. She is so good at explaining these incredibly useful ways that humans are. You will find it infinitely useful in all of the relationships in your life. It is going to make you better. It is going to make your relationships better. It is insane. I can't recommend it enough. So please, guys, dive into that one. And this is a weekly show. So if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey! Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Impact Theory. If this content is adding value to your life, our one ask is that you go to iTunes and Stitcher and rate and review. Not only does that help us build this community, which at the end of the day is all we care about, but it also helps us get even more amazing guests on here to share their knowledge with all of us. Thank you guys so much for being a part of this community. And until next time, be legendary, my friends. Be legendary.